0: Good to see you guys. My name is Robert. I'm one of your pastors here at Redemption Hill. Um, We are going to begin our time together right now with some words uh, that are not mine, but they come from uh, A.W. Tozer, a great church uh, pastor and theologian from the 20th century. Um, This is what Tozer has to say. I will turn my clock on for your benefit. This is what Tozer has to say. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And let's take that out of the collective. Let's make that personal. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion and spiritual history will show that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. For this reason, The gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most pretentious fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. Were we able to extract from any man a complete answer to the question, what comes into your mind when you think about God, we might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that man. Were we able to know exactly what our most influential religious leaders think of God today, we might be able to, with some precision, foretell where the church will stand tomorrow. That our idea of God correspond as nearly as possible to the true being of God is of immense importance to us. I believe there is scarcely an error in doctrine or a failure in applying Christian ethics, and he just means by applying doctrine to our lives and living it out. I believe that there's scarcely an error in doctrine or a failure in applying Christian ethics that cannot be traced finally to imperfect and ignoble thoughts about God. So before the Christian church goes into eclipse anywhere in the world, there must first be a corrupting of her simple basic theology. Now listen to what he says. She simply, and you can think about yourself and make it personal, you simply get a wrong answer to the question, what is God like? And then go on from there. Let's pray. God, we thank you uh, this morning that you are indeed a great God. And Jesus, we thank you that you are God who has come into human history to live, to die, and to rise from the dead to take away our sin. And Holy Spirit, we thank you for convicting us of sin, for regenerating our hearts, for transforming our will, for renewing our mind so that we might live by your strength through the Son to the glory of God the Father. And God, as we Look into your word this morning to study your nature. I ask for wisdom to teach well and I ask that you would do what only you could do and you would help us to understand who you are as we seek to live and to love and to know you deeply. We ask this in Jesus' good name, amen, amen. If A.W. Tozer is right in what he said and I personally think he is, then there can be no greater pursuit in our life, in the pursuit to come face to face with the real God, and to allow allow him to transform our souls and to allow our lives to then reflect a satisfaction and a joy and a confidence in who he is. So that's why, and it's one chief reason why, this fall we are embarking on the series that we're calling The Real God for the Real World, that's based on the historic Nicene Creed. And last week, if you were here, we actually kind of introduced the series. We introduced the history of the Creed and we gave some biblical motives for why the Creed was formulated, but biblical motives for why we're actually going to use it and teach through it, as well as some cultural motives. And at the end of our time last week, we had the chance to just look at how the Creed started and what it's declaring as it starts. We had a chance to look at the beginning of the Creed that says, we believe in. I got to talk about what's actually being confessed and what's actually being declared. That as we declare together as a people we believe in, we're not simply going to declare that we believe in a certain set of propositional truths, but the creed will take us deeply into a person that we are believing into. The creed will unpack the fact that as a Christian community, as the church, we are believing by faith into the person of God himself. And so this morning, as we continue on in the series, we're actually going to look at the first real proposition of the Creed. And it follows that beginning of we believe in. And and in in weeks to come, we'll say it together as we get more words behind it. But really, this morning, we're just going to add two words to what we did last week. So I'll just say it for us. You ready? We believe in one God. That's how the Creed actually starts. And this idea of belief, of active faith, of believing into one God is a fundamental part of the historic Christian faith, and it's always been. And I just want to give you a sampling of some scriptures that declare this, this belief in the one true God this morning. And, and, and it would be tempting, and we'll talk about it in a few minutes, to actually turn this sermon into a lecture of, of just running through different scriptures to show you different aspects of what's being said here in the Creed. But we're going to try to not do that for our entire time together. But in the beginning, I just want to run through some different different passages to connect these ideas for you. So in the scriptures, you don't have to turn with me. I Hopefully they'll pop up. Uh, you'll find in places like Deuteronomy 4, verse 35, the declaration that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. That's a pretty clear statement. Deuteronomy thirty-two, thirty-nine. God himself says, there is no God beside me. That's fairly authoritative, wouldn't you say? There is no God beside me. Isaiah 43.10, God again says, Before me no God was formed, nor shall there after me. So no God was formed before the one true God, and no true God will be formed after him. In Isaiah 45.5, we read in our continuation of worship already, God said, I am the Lord. There is no other. Besides me, there is no God. There is one true God. And classically, this is called historically monotheism the belief in one God, monotheism. And these professions, these confessions that were made by the early church, as we pulled them out, at least in the Old Testament, were, were declarations that were made in the, in the midst of a, of a polytheistic culture, of a culture that believed in many gods. And, and so these declarations were made to declare that no, there aren't many gods, there is one true God. But in 325 AD, 324, 325 AD, when the bishops of the church gathered together in Nicaea under the direction of Constantine to hammer out the essentials of the Christian faith in the midst of a, of a declaration of what was beginning to believe to be heresy, what they were actually saying when they hammered out the Nicaean Creed and said, we believe in one God, was a succinct way of addressing what is historically called the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, I'll say this from the outset you will not find the word Trinity anywhere in the Bible. Historically, most scholars believe that it was used for the first time Uh, by one of the early church fathers named Tertullian, who lived between 155 to 220 AD. And he used this word as the best way to synthesize the scripture's teaching about who the person of God really was as he has revealed himself to be throughout all of scripture as one God who has existed eternally in three persons, the Father, Son, and the Spirit. And so what we'll do is we'll start with the definition of the Trinity and we'll kind of move forward from there. So I'm going to give you a definition of the Trinity. It's not mine. I'm actually borrowing it. uh, So don't think me too smart for giving you a definition. Um, The Trinity definition defined would go like this. The Trinity is one God, monotheism, who eternally exists as three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, who are each fully and equally God. So one God, in essence, that consists of three distinct persons, each of which, Father, Son, and Spirit, are fully God. One God, in essence, three distinct persons. Augustine. Early church father, one of the most brilliant minds in the history of the Christian church, wrote most extensively on the Trinity. Uh, Really, if you go back and look at how the early church fathers wrote on the Trinity, Augustine probably wrote the most, and his writings have lasted the longest as far as formulating a doctrine of the Trinity. And this is what he actually said. He said, if you deny the Trinity, you lose your soul. If you try to explain it, you'll lose your mind. And so as I read that, I was comforted. And so my hope this morning is to avoid both of those pitfalls for all of us. That We may not lose our souls and that along with you, we may not lose our minds. Um, John Calvin, another church father, he said this about the Trinity. This is how he defined it. He said, the Father and the Son and the Spirit are one God. Yet the Son is not the Father, nor the Spirit the Son. And as he gave us that definition of the Trinity, he continued on in the next couple of sentences to say that he wished that he could just leave it at that, that he could just define it and leave it. But he couldn't because all manners of distortions arise around this. And so he felt like our, and for, for proper understanding, we had to actually go further. So this morning, we're going to go a little bit further because distortions have arisen and distortions constantly arise by the idea of who God really is. And if Tozer's right, and I think he is, what's most important about us is what we think about God, who we think he is in relation to who he has said he is. Because how we relate to God based on who he's revealed himself to be has everything to do with the confidence and the comfort and the joy that we experience now and we hope to experience in eternity. So every generation from the early church through the 21st century has has had groups or ideas that have arisen from within the church that to one degree or another have distorted a proper understanding of who God really is. And they tend to fall into a couple categories. Generally, these distortions tend to either err in emphasizing the the, the single, the oneness, the, the unity, the essence of the oneness of God over and against the distinctiveness of the three persons or they tend to err on the other side and that they emphasize the distinctiveness of the Godhead, the three personhood of the Godhead over and against the essential unity of the oneness of God and it, it's tough to remember and here's one of those ideas that you're just gonna spin around on your head but it's true because it's how God's revealed himself to be. He is no more essentially one than he is three and he is no more essentially three than he is one. And all of these distortions have arisen because emphasis has been played on one over and against the other. One of them, you you may not be familiar with the name, uh, historically has been called modalism. I don't know if you've ever heard of modalism, but modalism is the idea that there are not three distinct persons. There's just one God, and at particular times he's the Father, and at particular times he's the Son, and at other times he's the Spirit. So there's one God, but there's not three distinct persons who are each fully God. And, and so whether you've heard about modalism or not, you've probably come across in, in, at some point in your time the idea or the analogy that the, Holy, that the Trinity is like water, Somebody may have taught you this or you may have tried to teach somebody about the Trinity and you try to use this analogy that the best way to understand the Trinity is to understand the elements of of H2O, of water. You know, at one time it's, it's water, it's running water, it's liquid, but that water can then be frozen into ice, but it's still the same essential element, but now it exists as ice. But if you heat it up enough, then that... Same element, essential element that was ice can become vapor, it can become steam. It's the same essential essence, but it can be steam, it can be water, and it can be ice. Well, that is a great way to describe the historical heresy of modalism. Because if you actually think about it, when H2O is ice, it can't be running water or steam. When H2O is steam, it can't be running water or ice. The Trinity says that God is one in essence, but three in distinction, three persons, and each one of the distinct persons is fully God. Another great way to teach historical heresy to one another is to try to explain the Trinity as a triangle. This is the the first way that I was introduced to the Trinity. You know, a triangle is one triangle that consists of three sides, right? It's one triangle that has three sides. The Trinity. Well, no. It's, It's more like historic modalism because if you were to take the sides apart in that triangle those sides do not exist as triangles in and of themselves right you draw a triangle you split the sides apart each side is not a triangle in and of itself they're just pieces of a triangle that's what modalism says there's there's not three distinct persons but the trinity actually says that there is one god and three distinct persons and each person is fully god in contemporary life aside from analogies just so you don't think this thing died out in history and we've just carried out bad ways to teach it, there is a part of what they would profess to be the historic Christian church that teaches what's called a oneness theology. A oneness theology. It's actually the stated belief of the United Pentecostal Church. And I'm not here to bash the United Pentecostal Church, but they actually believe in historic modalism. They actually deny the classic Christian doctrine of the Trinity. They believe in Jesus alone. And at times, Jesus can be the Father, and at times, Jesus can be the Spirit, But there are not three distinct persons, just one, just Jesus. It's called oneness theology. So historic modalism, there's nothing new under the sun. It's just called oneness theology or bad examples on how to teach the Trinity. So we've got to get it right. So aside from modalism, there was this thing you can call tritheism. Tritheism, three gods. There's not one God, essential in essence, who is made up of three distinct persons. There's just three distinct gods, So tritheism is just another way of actually saying polytheism. And whether you've come across a polytheist in your life or culture or travels, you've probably had someone knock on your front door in a white shirt and black pants with a name tag, elder so-and-so who rode his bike through your neighborhood. This is the classic belief of the Mormon church. The Mormon church has a tritheistic belief in God. They deny the historic Christian trinity. They actually believe that Jesus was a man who became God. God. And if you actually follow their doctrine through, if you actually learn it, you'll actually see that one of the proponents of classic uh, Mormon doctrine is that you have that very same potential. That you, according to their doctrine, could very well become God. It's Just polytheistic. Tri-theistic, some will say, in that they believe that when they read the classic historic Christian scriptures, it's actually talking of three very distinct gods, not one. So that's an error that you've got to deal with and pay attention to. Probably all met Mormons somewhere along the line. Then there was what the doctrine or the heresy that was rising when the Nicene Creed was written called Arianism. Arianism actually believed that the Father was God, but not the Son or the Spirit. The Father himself was fully God, but Jesus was just a man who was the best way for us to relate to the Father. He very well could have become divine in a sense, but in no way was he of the same essence of the Father. Only God was the Father. Jesus and the Spirit weren't. Well, if you haven't met an Arian you've probably met a Jehovah's Witness. This is the same classic understanding of the Jehovah's Witnesses when they think about the person of God. They believe in Jehovah. Jehovah is God, not Jesus, not the Spirit. So you may not have run across a classic Arian, but you've probably met a Jehovah's Witness in your day and age. But then there's also the the Islamic faith. When you talk about other ideas that are rising to prominence in our day and age, the Islamic faith classically denies the historic Christian trinity. They actually believe And what is a divine unity that has no differentiation among itself. Now, I told this to the first service, so I'll I'll tell it to you. Uh, There is a term for this. If you want to sound smart in your next party or you want to call somebody a bad name, but you don't want to use the one that you really want to use, you can use this one. What they actually believe about God is called this. They believe that God is an undifferentiated monad an undifferentiated monad. You can call somebody that if you want. And what that means is simply this, that there is a divine unity that has no distinctiveness in and of itself. So they actually believe that there's this divine unity in God, but in that divine unity, there's no distinctiveness of persons. And this is huge. I mean, I'm not telling you all this just so that you can have an idea of what Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and atheists and and, and Muslims actually believe. You understand that if they're right, If the Islamic faith is right and God is an undifferentiated monad who exists in a divine unity with no distinction in and of himself, then you realize that what that means is that to express his character, to express love, mercy, sovereignty, justice, power, he is dependent upon his creation. If he's not differentiated in and of himself, if there is no relationship that exists within that divine unity that's distinct, then he's dependent upon what he creates to express who he really is. That is antithetical to the teaching of scripture. The God of the Bible is not dependent upon creation to express who he is. He's not dependent upon you and I to express his love. For all of eternity, before anything that is was ever created, God has existed as one God distinct in three persons who are fully satisfied in and of themselves in the Godhead, fully delighting for all of eternity in the perfections of God. He does not need us to show who he is, to reflect his character. So the doctrine of the Trinity is an absolutely central doctrine to the Christian faith. Ultimately, it's what distinguishes Christianity from many other major world religions or ideologies or philosophies. So I want you to understand that talking about the trinity, i don't want you to just think we're talking about old dusty, you know, doctrine or academic ideas or or reasons you wish you should have checked out and not come this week and waited to come another week because we're just going to talk about academic things. You may have never met a arian or a modalist or a tritheist, but you probably live near mormons, jehovah's witnesses, atheists, muslims, all very modern, all very contemporary all with very incorrect understandings of who God is. And you need to listen to what Tozer had to say. Because if you get it wrong about who God is, if your heart is not surrendered to the God who has revealed himself in his word, what is at stake is not just wrong ideas about God, your eternal destiny and hope and confidence and joy is at stake. And so in the time that we've got left, the biggest problem that we've got to face, and I'm just going to be honest with you in this so that you don't think I'm, I'm just trying not to mention it, the biggest problem that we face, and really the biggest problem that I face this morning, is that there is not a single verse that I can go to to unpack the totality of the doctrine of the Trinity. I can't tell you a book and a chapter and a verse to go to where I can start and then finish and unpack all the distinctive ideas about the Trinity, If I were to actually teach you on the the pervasive scope of what scripture has to say about the Trinity, about the fact of there being one true God who exists in three persons, and each of those three persons being God themselves, we would sweep all the way through scripture and this would end up being a lecture and more of a PowerPoint demonstration than it would be a sermon. But here's what I'm excited about. By going through the Nicene Creed, because the Nicene Creed presents to us God as he has given, us to him, given, given himself to us through his word. Week after week, we're going to have to deal with where the scriptures talk about the Father being God, the Son being God, and the Spirit being God. So this morning, I'm not going to take us through that. I'll, I'll, we'll start here in just a second. I'll give us one example of where we find this idea of one God and, and three distinct persons played out in one particular passage, but then we're going to take a different route to trying to understand this idea of the Trinity, all right? So the... Know that it's coming. In weeks to come, we'll talk about how the scriptures present the Father, the Son, and the Spirit individually being God. But this morning, we're going to take a bit of a different route. And one place that you can see this idea of one God with three distinct persons being played out a little bit in the scriptures is in Matthew chapter 28. Um, I don't think it's going to come up on the screen, but Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 through 20. They're familiar texts. It's why I picked this one. Uh, it's what's called the Great Commission. Uh, before Jesus ascended back to be with the Father, uh, he looked at his followers, he looked at the disciples, and he gave them this commission. He, he set them out with their marching orders. And he said, go into all the nations, go into all of the world, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, the Son, in the Spirit and teaching all people everything that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always. And what you see in that one little section, those two little verses, is you see this three and one dynamic being expressed by Jesus. When Jesus said, When you go into all the earth and you baptize in the name, he used a singular noun to talk about the nature and personhood of God he didn't say go and baptize in the names as though there are three gods, each with a distinct name that you're to go and baptize in. He said no singular. There is one God with one essential nature and one name. Go and baptize in his name. But this one God is expressed in three persons, the Father, Son, and the Spirit. And each is God and each in its own way shows what God is like. So this is how you begin to this is how you begin to interact with the idea of the trinity if you're to read the scriptures you're not going to find a spot that says this is the trinity what you begin to see is how the trinity plays itself out in the life that we live in relation to who god really is and so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to come at it a little bit different the doctrine of the trinity when we talk about it is is not something that is best built by arguing from a collection of texts and i stand to be proven wrong on that Uh, again I said this is the first service that might be an idea that I have that's youthful and arrogant and ultimately ignorant. But I don't think that the doctrine of the Trinity is best um, cherished, um, best trusted in and provides the most confidence in our life when we build it by just grabbing texts and getting them together. At best, I think when we do that, what we come up with is a mental agreement that when we synthesize all of what Scripture has to say about who God is, the doctrine of the Trinity best represents what Scripture says, and we can end up with this mental agreement with this doctrine, which in one hand really isn't bad, but that's not what we're after. Um, A professor named Fred Sanders from Biola University in California, he's a theology and philosophy professor, he said something that I came across years ago that just... Unpacked this whole thing for me and opened up my soul to this doctrine in a way that in years of study I had never really understood before. And this is what he said. He said, The first step on the way to the heart of the Trinitarian mystery, and it's a mystery, is to recognize that as Christians, we find ourselves already deeply involved in the triune life, and we need only to reflect rightly on that present reality. Most evangelical Christians don't need to be talked into Trinitarian theory. They need to be shown that they, are immer- that they are immersed in the Trinitarian reality. We need to see and feel that we are surrounded by the Trinity, compassed about on all sides by the presence and the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And from that starting point, truly productive teaching can begin. So what he's saying is that if you have experienced the gospel and you live in any accurate sense or measure of fellowship with God, then you are already living in the midst of a Trinitarian reality. And so our grasp of the Trinity and our appreciation for the Trinity and our delight in the idea of who God is as he reveals himself in the Trinity doesn't come from some advanced lesson in theology. It doesn't come from Doctrine 102 where we synthesize all these texts. It actually comes from understanding the gospel. See, the deeper that we dig into the gospel, the deeper that we'll actually begin to dig into the mystery of the Trinity. And so what I want for us, not just from today, but for the days to come and the weeks to come, is that when we hear the word Trinity, or we come across the idea of the Trinity, or we read the word Trinity, what pops into our mind are not all the different ways we've got to figure out how to explain it. Where's the water? Where's the egg? Where's the triangle? Where's the shamrock? How do I explain this thing to you? When you hear the Trinity, what I want your mind to immediately jump to is the gospel. Because if you have experienced any measure of grace from God and fellowship with God through the gospel, you are already experiencing and living in a Trinitarian reality. And to best understand the Trinity, you just need to understand the gospel. John Owen, one of the great pastors in church history, he said this. He said, when God designed the great and glorious work of of recovering fallen man and saving, and the saving of sinners to the praise of the glory of his grace, he appointed in his infinite wisdom two great means. The one was the giving of his son for them, and the other was the giving of his spirit to them. And hereby was the way made for the manifestation of the glory of the whole blessed Trinity, which is the utmost end of all the works of God what he's saying and what you begin to see when you begin to dig into the gospel and the scriptures is the trinitarian reality working itself out in the salvation of sinful men and women like you and i you see the father giving the son for us as a sacrifice for our sin in our place and you see the father giving the spirit to us making alive to our dead hearts the beauty in the face of christ making the sacrifice of Christ, wisdom and righteousness and redemption to us, sealing us for a confident, joyful eternity with God himself. And you see this in the gospel. Let me just, let me just show you a couple of places. If you've got your Bibles, go to Galatians chapter four. It should pop up on the screen. It's always good, though, to use your Bible and go to it and get comfortable flipping around and finding things. So Galatians chapter four. We'll start in verse 4. I just want you to see this triune activity in the gospel. I want you to see the Trinitarian reality that you're already experiencing that will help you grasp what's going on here. Galatians 4, we'll start in verse 4. Paul said this, When the fullness of time had come, God, talking about the Father, sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Why? Verse 5, To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So the Father sent the Son for us to redeem us. Look at verse six. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So the Father sent the Son for us to redeem us, and the Father sent the Spirit of the Son to us to adopt us into his family. That's one spot where you see this Trinitarian reality. and We could spend weeks just on that one, but let me show you another one, Ephesians chapter one. This is probably the most famous expression of the Trinitarian reality in the gospel. Ephesians chapter one, verses four through 13. I'm not gonna read them all. One of the most explosive collections of text in all of scripture. Arguably my favorite book of the Bible next to Jude. Um, if we were to read the whole thing, I don't think I could ever leave the first couple of verses. So I'm going to synthesize it for you and just show you what I'm talking about. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 13. You can kind of follow along, but I'm going to collapse some of this text together. Paul says this to the church. In love, he, and he's talking about God the Father, predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. There's the Son. According to the purpose of his will, by Mother the Father to the praise of his glorious grace, the Father, which he, the Father, has blessed us in the beloved, Jesus. In him, talking about Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Skip down a little bit. In him, talking about Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, Jesus, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Paul is bringing the church into the Trinitarian reality, the fullness of who God is and what he has done for them, taking them away from themselves, centering on themselves and giving them a God's, God's eye, kind of bird's eye view at who he is and what he has done. And he has said that God the Father planned our salvation and chose to send his Son into the world to save us from our sin. The Son... Not the Father and not the Spirit is the one who came to become a man and to live a perfect life in our place and to die on the cross in our place for our sin. And then the Holy Spirit, not the Father and not the Son, actually worked to bring Jesus into that reality. It was the Holy Spirit who was at work in the virgin birth bringing conception to Mary it was the holy spirit that descended upon jesus empowering him for his ministry jesus had a very spirit filled ministry and it was the holy spirit who worked in and through the ministry of jesus and ultimately raised him from the dead that now seals and applies the work of jesus to our lives and to our hearts and brings us to the capacity where we could have faith in who jesus is and what he has done it is as paul will say the holy spirit who opens up our eyes to see jesus and to see in jesus wisdom and rede- redemption, and righteousness. It is a Trinitarian reality that all happens, Paul says, to the praise of God's glorious grace. The gospel is the place where we begin to understand the depths of the Trinity of who God is for us. But why bother that? Why, Why bother with even trying to unpack that? Isn't it enough just to know that it happened? I mean, isn't it enough just to have faith in Jesus and all that he is and has done for us? Why bother actually unpacking the different Trinitarian dynamics? Well, if Tozer was right in what he said at the very beginning, and again, I think he is, then nothing short of actually having right ideas about God that produce in us right affections and delight for God will ever actually truly satisfy our soul. If he's right, nothing short of the fullness of who God is and has been for us, whatever truly satisfy us. And so whenever we think shallow or, as Tozer said, ignoble thoughts about God, and we settle into those thoughts as reality, nothing can happen but us conceiving and having shallow or ignoble thoughts about salvation. If we don't have right thoughts about who God is, we will never have right thoughts about our salvation. And the Trinity, the fullness of who God is as is exposed in the gospel, provides for us a daily strength and a daily confidence and a daily hope in the midst of a very fallen and very fragmented and disoriented world. And so in the time that we've got left, I'll take you to one more passage and I'll show you how this can become a daily joy and a daily delight and how we can see the fullness of God and the Trinitarian reality of God unpacked in the gospel and how that can prove for us a daily strength and a daily comfort. Flip over to the 2 Corinthians. Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. Flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Now when Paul was, was faced with some difficult realities with this church, we know if you read those two letters that we only have two of those letters that we still have that are recorded for us in the Bible, but we know he wrote at least four. And this church was a mess. Paul loved this church. This church was near and dear to Paul's heart. And when he was faced with the fact that this church was coming apart at the seams, he he wrote them these letters to help direct them, to help correct them, to, to help unpack some misunderstandings to them. And when he wrapped up this second letter that is ultimately, I think, his fourth, and when he wraps up this final letter to this church, in the midst of all the chaos and everything that was going on there, I want you to listen to what his great hope for this church really is. What his great desire for this church really is. Second Corinthians chapter 13 verse 14. Let's help Paul wraps it up. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. I mean, this was the way he closed with his most sincere desire for this church. This church that was splitting apart at the seams, falling into different factions, following different teachers, no longer following to the sound words of the gospel that Paul had taught them, denying the reality of the cross, living with such rampant immorality that Paul would say, you live in such immorality that pagans don't even condone. Getting drunk at communion. The Apostle Paul is trying to set them straight in all the ways that I think I would have ended that letter. This is the way that he ends it. And this is his deepest desire, his most sincere hope for this church. And it's my greatest desire and my most sincere hope for this church. What Paul wants for them and what I want for us is a deep delight and confidence in the powerful work of the Trinity. Now, Paul didn't say that. He didn't say, I want you to delight and have confidence in the Trinity. It's not what he said, but it is what he said. He said what they needed most and what we need most is to hear about and to delight in the Trinitarian truth of the grace of Christ, a grace that has met our deepest and most profound needs, a grace that was wholly undeserved, a grace that was freely given. And if you read that letter through, Paul actually uses this phrase earlier in the letter and it helps define what he's saying for us. In chapter eight, verse nine, Paul says this, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is what he wants us to know at the very end. And earlier in the letter, he's actually defining it. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, that though for all of eternity he has existed in full delight and satisfaction in the Godhead, in the presence of God the Father and God the Spirit, in full delight in the perfection of God, though he was rich, for your sake he became poor. He left the presence of the fullness of God in eternity and came to earth and took on the form of man, becoming a slave, living the life that we were created to live and then dying to pay the price for the life that we live instead. Though he was rich, he became poor. Why? So that You, by his poverty, might become rich. That we might be brought into, by faith, the Trinitarian relationship and fellowship and joy and delight that he has had for all of eternity in the presence of God the Father. This is the grace of Christ that we are to know, to delight in, to have confidence in on a daily basis. We're not very unlike, we're not unlike this Corinthian church. We do many of the same things, and we do countless other things that Paul didn't mention. And in all of them, we trample the grace of God daily and we diminish the glory of God in our real life and our relationships with one another by demanding that we become the God in the center of our own life. Like the Corinthians, we need to be reminded daily to delight in the grace of God, the grace of the Trinitarian God as it's most clearly revealed in the gospel and of which the centerpiece is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Paul didn't say, may you, delight and have confidence in the Trinity. But he did. He said, may you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. May you know the love of God. And you're there he's talking about the Father in particular. And where do we see the love of the Father in the gospel? If the gospel helps us most clearly understand and see and taste the Trinitarian reality that we live in, where do we see the Father at work in the gospel? How about in designing a love so deep and so wide and so rich that he actually sent his own son to be a substitute for us? John, the apostle and the writer of the Gospels and the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, he said this, for God so loved the world. And what's the definition of that love? For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. And later on, John would write to say, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us. Okay, so what made manifest the full love of God amongst us? He sent his only son into the world. The Apostle Paul who wrote this letter to the church in Corinth, he would write another letter to the church in Rome and he would say this, that God shows his love for us. Okay, how does he show it? Okay, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So what he's saying is that behind the death of the Son for us, as he sent the Son for us, behind the death of the Son for us, stands the love of God the Father towards us behind the death of the Son for us stands the love of God the Father towards us. C.J. Mahaney, great pastor, he said there's no more effective way to be persuaded of God the Father's love than to be reminded of the cross, which is the supreme demonstration of the Father's personal love for you. So where do we see the Father's love expressed in the gospel at which the centerpiece is, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ? We see it in the very designing and sending of his Son to be a substitute in our place, but we also see it not only in that, but in his adoption of us as sons, his bringing of us into his family. John, the writer we read earlier, he'd say this, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. Okay, so so look, he's about to define the love of the Father. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. See, like the Corinthian church, we, we should be able to hear, be reminded today, have confidence today, have hope today, have joy today in the Trinity. And that should make our minds jump and leap to the grace of Jesus Christ and to the love of Father, to, be, to the love of the Father, to be reminded daily, personally, specifically about God's passionate love for us that is displayed in his sending of his son to die in our place and his adoption of us into his family. And we need to be reminded of that just like they needed to be reminded of that because every single day, every single one of us is tempted to doubt God's love for us in very real and very specific ways. Many of you live most of your lives day in and day out thinking that God merely tolerates you or that he's frustrated with you or that he's eager and waiting to actually punish you so I just have to ask, are you, are you convinced of the Father's love for you? Does the love of the Father and the grace of Christ produce in you a deep and abiding joy and confidence in the day in and day out reality in a very fallen, and fragmented world? C.J. Mahaney would go on to say this. He crushed his son for you so that he might adopt you so that he might convince you of his holy love for you. Paul didn't say, I want you to delight in the Trinity, but he did. He said, I want you to know the grace of Christ today, the love of the Father today, and what a love it is that we're brought into. And the next phrase actually begins to bring that home and unpack that in a deeper way for us. It says, may you know the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. See, for all of eternity, the fullness of god the father son and the spirit have been together in one another's presence delighting in one another being satisfied in one another rejoicing in one another in this self-giving dynamic divine and eternal love for one another they have been in, one, in the most deep and satisfying and, and profound relationship that we could ever imagine and for all of eternity whether there was creation or not, whether we existed and needed redemption or not, this is who God is and who God has always been and who God always will be. The fellowship of the Spirit, the fellowship of the Godhead, the joy of relationship that has existed for all of eternity, this is what Paul wants us to know and wants us to experience. And I want to say this just by way of kind of Correction and just to help you see how this kind of applies to what we were saying earlier. Let's pick on Islam for a second. If God is an undifferentiated monad, if there is a divine unity with no differentiation in person, do you realize what that actually means for a practical implication in how we live and what we experience and how we relate to God? If there was no differentiation in person, it means that until God created, until creation came into being, There was no capacity for love. There was no love. And if there was no love before he created, then the essence of who he is could not be love. It couldn't be this deep and profound relationship that we hope that we're being brought into by his grace. Because if he was undifferentiated in essence, and if he was just one, then the actual implication of being created in that image is that we should be most after our own individual rights and needs. Because there is no love. There is no relationship. It didn't exist. That's not what the scriptures say. The scriptures say that God, the one true God has existed for all of eternity in three distinct persons and that God has has existed in the most deep and dynamic and profound relationship of love that has ever been and will ever be. And the most amazing thing about the fellowship of the Spirit is that God actually extends this divine love relationship, this divine fellowship to us to be experienced by faith in who he has been for us in the person and work of Christ that has made glorious to our hearts to the person and work of the Holy Spirit. The gospel is the grace of God where he brings us to himself by being himself towards us. This is how we begin to grasp this idea of who he is. The gospel is the grace of God bringing us to himself by being himself towards us. The full Trinitarian reality of the Godhead for us brings us by grace to him. The gospel is how we understand the way that God gives himself to us By the Father giving the Son and the Spirit. The gospel helps us understand how God is in with us in Christ and in the Spirit of Christ. And it helps us truly know God as He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's to this one true God that we read in Isaiah 45 in the call to worship. It's this one true God to who we are to turn. And it is this God that opens up the eyes of our hearts to see in the face of Christ beauty, wisdom, righteousness, and redemption. So Paul does say to that church and to us, I want you to delight in and have confidence in the Trinity. It has massive and deep and profound implications for how we not only live our life, but how we understand who we are and how we relate to God. And his prayer is my prayer, that we may experience in a day-in and day-out reality the grace of Christ, the love of the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Let me pray for us. Father, we uh, thank you. I personally thank you this morning, for devising a plan by which I could be saved, we could be saved, and you sent your son. And Jesus, we thank you that you came to live without sin, to die in our place for our sins on the cross and to rise for our salvation. And Holy Spirit, we thank you that you have been sent to save us, to regenerate us, to transform us, to take the Trinitarian reality of fellowship and love and bring that love and life and joy into the very center of our lives and our being. And Father, we honor you and we honor your son by the power of your spirit. And God, we know that living this life, this Trinitarian reality, is only possible by your spirit. So, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would enable us to see the beauty of God in the face of Christ, that you would make Jesus' wisdom and redemption to our lives and to many of those in here who have never, never, never seen your grace in the face of Christ. Jesus, we thank you that you are a great high priest, a living high priest, our intercessor, our advocate right now at the right hand of the Father. So God, we honor you, we glorify you, we want to make much of you and we want to delight in you and enjoy you deeply today. We ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen.